So we've been walking through this letter that the Apostle Paul writes to this church in Thessalonica, a church that he planted but then had to leave before he was ready. And they had to run and exist on their own. They were just a, a like, I mean, we talk about this, we're like a toddler of a church. This is like a little, little baby church that's coming to life. And he writes this encouraging letter that simply says, look, keep doing what you're doing. Keep letting the fruit of the gospel change you and do so more. Excel in it more and more. All the way to chapter four, after he's laid the groundwork for how the gospel comes as a power that brings us Full conviction, we're convinced of our unworthiness of God's love, but at the same time, we're convinced as we look at the cross of our assurance of God's love, that in Christ we have that which we could never earn or deserve ourselves. And when we're fully convinced of that, it starts to look a certain way. We begin to, as this church did, start to long for Jesus to come back. And so we saw a picture of leadership and the relationship of the love between the Apostle Paul and his church. And then in chapter 4, the very first word, he says, Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that, you re- that as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you were doing, that you do so more and more. His will, God's will for them, was they would be set apart and excel in this more and more. They'd be excelling in separateness. And so in this chapter, I think we find here that the church is ultimately made up of followers of Jesus that are growing, the word here is excelling, and hungry for more and more of him, that is Jesus. They are striving for holiness, separateness, most literally. And they are fleeing assimilation into the worldly and into worldliness in the categories, if we saw the ways in which the, this church could really make an impact, and I would argue the places where if you want to stand out in the culture, you begin to have a biblical view of these things, and the places they were called to be set apart from the world was in the area of sexuality, work, and then their beliefs about death and dying. That third one is where we pick up today in verse 13 of chapter 4. What it is that we believe about death and dying. So beginning in verse 13, I want to read to you and then expound upon this. And here, here's what this will be. Uh, I'm going to, and it may not seem like the right time or place to do it. I, I'm essentially, I'm going to preach to you a funeral sermon. Uh, and the, uh, the more I do this, the, the longer that I, uh, I am a pastor, uh, the more and more I, I, I really, I really kind of dig into things like this. Um, in fact, uh, three of the last funerals that I've had the honor of doing, I just stayed in this text. And the reason is this, you'll hear me say this regularly, where the gospel is assumed, it's almost always absent. And if you can't speak explicitly, word for word, like what the gospel is, who God is, what he's done for you in Jesus, and that that is good news. Not another law that you ought to do and don't do. Not another set of good, like rules and good advice that you ought to follow, but done, the good thing that God has done. If you can't put that into explicit terms, I want to warn you, that that means the gospel is likely absent in your own heart. And I've come to, when I do weddings, I basically preach out of Ephesians 5. I used to kind of jump around, love is patient and kind. And, and now in, in Ephesians 5, I'm like, look, this is about Jesus. And regularly, we get together, and this is the culture. People want to say, no, this wedding is about me. And I'm like, Ephesians 5 says this is about Jesus. And then the mother of the bride goes, no, it's about me. And I'm like, no, it's about Jesus. <laughs> you, you laugh all you want though, and then cry. And I'm just, I'm digging my heels in on this one. If I get the chance to speak to another group of people, whether it's about marriage or otherwise, I'm like, look, this is about Jesus and what he's done for us. This is a picture of the gospel made manifest. But also now, 
this is, this is where I dig in on, on a funeral. Like this, I mean, by God's grace, if I get a chance to speak at your funeral, you just need to know what I'm about to tell you is what I'll probably say at your funeral. Because where the gospel isn't explicit, it's almost always absent. And as my grandfather would say, if it doesn't preach at a funeral, it don't preach. Beginning in verse 13, picture of what we look like when we believe the Bible about death and dying. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep. That you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Verse 1 of chapter 5. Now, concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman. And they will not escape. While people are, excuse me, but you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the light, excuse me, of the night or of the darkness. So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk, or excuse me, are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. My hope is that in our time together, this becomes more than just ink on a page, but it becomes the very words of God for the people of God. I'm going to do something here. I'm sure there's a sermon illustration in there somewhere. I'm just not that smart. I almost said bright. (laughs) Dead! So Paul gives us a picture here through this word to this church of what it will look like to be separate from the world. That to follow Jesus will mean to believe in some things about some aspects of our own life that will make us stand out from everyone else. 
And the beginning of this chapter, that's exactly what he says. He says, this is God's will for you, your sanctification. That is, you're growing in holiness. The word holy simply means set apart. God's will for you, if you call yourself a Christian, you are now filled with the Holy Spirit, and you look more and more separate from the world. So this, is, this ought to begin to already provoke you. If your inward desire is to look like everyone else and to fit in, then you, we, we have to resist that temptation because what Christ has done changes that. Now we have a new orientation to the world. We stand apart from the world. And we begin, I think, begin to excel in separateness in the way that we think about intimacy between men and women, the way that we think about intimacy, uh, or excuse me, the way we think about our love for our brother being expressed through the way we work. And then today we see the way that we understand death, dying, and then living in the daylight. We begin to excel and grow in this. And I want to put this out there for you. I want you to begin to think about this in these terms as if I was speaking at your own funeral. In Christ, there is a certain and everlasting hope that is greater than any circumstance we face, whether in death or in life, in darkness or in light. There is a hope that we have now in Christ that is certain and everlasting. And this causes us to begin to excel. And so I want to do exactly what he says twice at the end of each section, encourage you with these words. I want to, I want to build you up. The word parakaleo, to come alongside or to call alongside you. I want to come along like a paramedic, right? I'm not the doctor, but I want to get you to the doctor, right? I want to encourage you. I'm, I'm not Jesus, but I want to come alongside you and get you to Jesus. Therefore, he says, take these things and encourage one another with them. We have a hope now that's certain, it's everlasting, and I want to give you that hope. I want to point you toward, I want, you to, I want to plead with you that the thing that you're currently hoping in, the thing that you're currently trusting in will fail. It will let you down. And the way that we have that exposed, and we saw this especially in the book of Ecclesiastes, is this. Death is the final revelation of misplaced human values. Another way to say that this, death ultimately reveals what you really value. Death exposes. You, you lose the ability to defend yourself. It exposes what you actually value. The way we talked about this in the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 3, chapter 5, chapter 9 and 10, this last spring, is that what you believe about death is the single greatest determiner of what you believe about life. What you believe about your death, the end of this thing we call life, is the single greatest thing that, that ultimately influences what you believe about what you're doing even now. What you believe about life informs why you think you should still keep breathing. Now here's the, the catch on that. Most of us are like, well, I don't think about life, or excuse me, I don't think about death. And that's why you're haphazardly wandering through this thing called life. You're not real confident about death. And that's why right now, you've wandered in this place like a lost puppy because you're not confident about your own life. And things like, why am I alive and what do I do? Those things rattle you. Those things grip you. And I want to encourage you. He, he gives us a picture of what the meaning of life is when we see its end. And the reason is because what you believe about death informs what you believe about life. Believe nothing about death? Well, Expect to get nothing or experience nothing meaningful in life. Terrified of death? Well, then you'll live in terror in life. Ultimately, Paul roots his <coughs> consolation, his encouragement 
and what we find to be true about death in Jesus Christ. So he starts, he says, we don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, right? So that kind of attacks that, like, well, I, I don't really care about death. Why should I care about it? He pushes on that. Look, you're probably living a hopeless life if you haven't thought seriously about this. So I want you to be informed, right? And this would be, it seems strange. It's kind of like a, 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 this is a fairly didactic way to speak to people about death, right? We typically talk about death in strictly sentimental terms, in empathetic or sympathetic terms, but he's like, no, I want to speak to you about what's true and what's false. I want you to know something before you think about the sentimentality that you experience in and around the talk of death. I want you to know something to be certain. I want there to be a verity underneath what you feel about life and death. I don't want you to be uninformed about those who are asleep, unaware. He wants them to learn. He wants them to evidently see something, but then he says, I want you to see something specifically about those who have fallen asleep. Now, evidently, the, the reason that Paul had to address this, again, same as he had, the reason he addressed multiple different things in this book to these people is something happened. Something was going on in this church. And as Paul sent Timothy, and, came, and Timothy came back with a report of how they were doing, he was encouraged by them, but there were also evidently some questions, some questions that had been raised by the people in Thessalonica. And this evidently was one of them. They were confused or distraught about death. He says, I don't want you to be uninformed so that ultimately you may not grieve as others who have no hope. I want you to know something so that in your grief you won't look like the world. Did you catch that? Remember this. This is the theme of this chapter, right? Separateness. You will not grieve like other people. But the way he talks about death is he calls it sleep. And don't miss that. He, he's, he's saying something to encourage you right then and there. Right? And there's nothing particularly dangerous about sleep. Right? In fact, it's a good thing. In fact, if you don't think of it as a good thing, try not. Try not sleeping. And you become real, oh, this is, I need this. And he compares, he says that sleep evidently is analogous to the way that God has built death into the system. It just happens. Things die. Now, this is where this is going to be tricky for us, specifically since this chapter already talked about human sexuality, and now it talks about death. Really interesting. In the last couple of centuries, there's been a flip-flop. So about four or five to ten centuries ago, uh, people would have been very, very quick and adept at talking about death. They would have been aware of its reality. You see it in art. You see it in culture. You see that death uh, plays a role. And they would have been very, very, very tentative and very cautious about talking about sex. And now, in our current day and age, we live in opposite world, right? Everything is sexualized. Everything. It's everywhere. It, it, it's like, look, if you're not attractive, you're not valuable. I mean, like, there's, it's built into everything. But you'd have to look really hard to find a prominent public conversation about death. We don't like to talk about it at all. We don't like to sing about it. We either kind of like mystify it or it becomes a power that we, you know, that, that we exhort over it. But we don't talk about it. And we come up with all sorts of euphemisms if we do have to talk about death. So we're in a tough spot. He's saying, look, you need to know these things and you need to understand death, otherwise you're missing out. 
Otherwise, you'll end up grieving like the rest of the world. And your goal, God's goal for you ultimately is that you'll look separate from the world. Death reveals what we really believe. And he says, an encouraging word, death is ultimately like sleep. It's not, not awful. Any more than sleep is awful. So this is a powerful thing for us. We begin to see death is, begins to expose something about us, what we really believe. Do we, do we believe it's sleep? Do you believe it's something God has ordained and is sovereign over, or is it something else? C.S. Lewis puts it this way. He says, life is either totally meaningless or totally meaningful, all depending on what death is. Life is either totally meaningless or it is totally meaningful depending on what death is. He said that ultimately, if you are, if you're just a, a collection of chemicals and molecules and atoms piled together haphazardly, then ultimately you serve real, no real purpose. There's no real meaning. There'd be no reason to feel sad because you're just a lump of matter. But, but there's something in us that pushes against that, right? So even if you're in this room, maybe you wouldn't call yourself a believer. Maybe you wouldn't call yourself a Christian. I'm really glad you're here because I want you to see that what you believe about death exposes what you really believe about who you are right now as you live. And there's something that like, doesn't feel comfortable with that, right? Like if, if someone you love dies, you don't just go, meh. Well, there, there goes that cell or th- th- that bundle of cells and matter. There goes you know, that tissue and all those molecules. You don't do that. There's something in you that goes like, no, there's, something's missing. Something isn't right. You see, death is the lens through which all of life has meaning. Death is the lens through which we understand everything. It's either totally meaningful, like that person that you have to say goodbye to you'll never see again. Either that meant something and had an impact, or it had none. And death is the lens through which you'll answer which that is. This is the way he looks at, Paul begins to encourage us. He says that ultimately, the fact that Jesus has died and, raised, and been raised, we know something else about death. That's why we can call it something like sleep. Paul roots his consolation in the resurrection of Jesus and his coming. Now we think about this on a regular basis when we read through the Gospels. Jesus regularly tells all sorts of parables, like the parable of the talents. He leaves things, then he comes back, right? Parable of, of, of some, some people, uh, some, some women excited about getting married and how they wait ultimately tells what they really believe about the groom that's coming. So this is a regular theme that Jesus talks about. Like there's a return. Jesus is here, he's alive, but then he's going to come back. And Paul says, ultimately, our hope is in that. So here's what I want to push back against. If ultimately the resurrection of Jesus is the paradigm of the destiny of the deceased believer, then that means we have a specific hope in Christ's resurrection. The way I would invite you to think about it this, again, if you're in this room, maybe you wouldn't call yourself a Christian. It's the first time you've thought about what Christians believe. Um, I'll just ask this question as you begin to like, ponder what I'm about to kind of point to a Christian hope. I want you to think about this. What does it mean? Like, what would it really mean if Jesus came back from the dead? What would that mean? Now, now Paul knows this is radical, right? His audience knows this is radical. The general consensus of the Gentiles that would have read this, not religious, would have been, these kinds of things don't happen. People who die stay dead. 
So there's nothing new here. Don't, don't think you're like, on dis- like a new, oh, I've got a new skepticism that no one else has experienced. But no, no, this isn't regular skepticism built into us. And so I, I, w- I would ask, like, what, what if Jesus is not dead? What would that mean? And for us, we, for us as Christians, we would say it means we have hope, even in the face of death, in the face of any experience, any circumstance. But here he puts on us not just a hope that Christ has died and will come back to life and bring others back to life, but I, I think he points out at least two things that I want to push on, and this is, this is, this is what I'm going to say at your funeral. There's a false hope, at least two, I think, here, that's pushed back against. There are false hopes in the face of death. The first one I tend to see the most, and I think that's addressed right here, our false hope in the face of death is the goodness of the deceased person. And the second one we see pushed back against here is the, minim- the minimizing the weight of death in hopes of just getting over it. You see this on a regular basis. The first one we'll look at, like the false hope in the face of death is first, like ha- having hope in the goodness of the deceased. So this means when the next time someone you meet, like they die or, you know, maybe someone in your family has died, you, you'll see this false hope emerge. And people will spend, they'll go to great lengths to talk about how awesome that person was. Like you, be, you become amazing once you die. It just immediately, like, oh man, he was awesome. We miss him. We love him. He was great. And people tend not to because, again, they, they're, they're afraid. So they look to a false hope. They tend not to say, man, he was a real jerk. Only a few people like harbor that thought in their mind, but nobody stands up at the funeral and is like, I hate this guy. Anybody else hate this guy? I hate this guy. Why are we here? No one does that. And I would argue it's because they're looking to a false hope. Maybe, maybe there really is a karma. Maybe there really is a balance. And this guy wasn't that bad. And so maybe, maybe death doesn't ruin this. Do you get it? Get it? What you believe about death affects what you believe about life. And it becomes a false hope that you'll see on a regular basis. And people regularly start to point to how awesome this person was. And I want to encourage you here. Paul does something that's radical. Paul pushes back against that. Paul says you're going to mourn in such a way that you have hope. And it would be a false hope to mourn in such a way that that basically looks past reality in this person's life and instead looks to the goodness or the, the perfection of this person. Don't miss that. That's karma. That's not the gospel. Underneath that is a belief that people get what they deserve. And that is an anti-gospel. Friend, thank God we get his grace and not what we deserve. Thank God we look at the cross and we know, look, look, someone's got to pay for our sin. Someone's got to pay for what's broken. And we look at the cross and we say, he paid. He did it. And we know that God takes sin seriously. But thank God it was him taking our place. That's a Christian hope. And it'd be a false gospel and be tempted to believe that like, people ultimately have like, good things coming to them because of the good thing they've done. That's not good news. That's not good news for someone who dies. It's not good for you, news for you. It's not good news for me. Ultimately, what's good is not the person and what they've done. What's good is what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. Look, one day I'm, I'm going to go in a box. I'm going to go I'm, and they're going to bury me and I'm out of here, okay? And I really wish on that day, this is what I wish, I wish that on that day my wife and my daughters would stand up in front of all of our, the people around and say how perfect that was. That would be awesome, right? My wife would just, he was a perfect husband, 
He's perfectly patient, a uh, perfect caregiver for our home, just a, just a model of Christ. I, I, I would, and he you know, just never failed, never, never betrayed, never disappointed. And my daughter would stand up and go, he was a model father. He was just like God as a father to me. He was perfect in every way, patient and loving and encouraging. I'm, I would love that. That would be awesome. If on the day they celebrate burying my body, that my wife and my daughters would stand up and talk about how perfect I am. There's a problem with that. That's not good news. Because I don't know what you bring to the table, but if that's what we, I, I have to hope in, that's what they have to hope in, then they will be without hope. The good news for me on that day is not what I have done. The good news for me on that day is what Jesus has done. And that's good news. So much that we would look at death and say, I now consider the sufferings of this present time not even worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. So let us not be tempted to think that we can paint an unrealistic uh, picture of who the people around us really are when they die. I mean, I'd love for them to huddle around me, and I'd love for you to huddle around me and talk about how awesome I am. But since that, not, that is not possible, the really good thing is that you would huddle around my dead body and talk about how awesome Jesus is. You could see my flaws, expose them for what they are, and not, be able, and not lose hope in that. But instead, you would see my own flaws and then look straight past them and see the Father who has majestically and matchlessly given the flawlessness of his son on my behalf. I hope that my failures as a father do not hinder my children from seeing a loving and perfect God. But since that's not possible, I hope that my flaws will point them towards the loving kindness of a God who sends his son to take my place. So, so resist the temptation to have a false hope in the perfection of a person. Find hope in the perfection of Jesus. Here's what we do. If someone dies around us, we, we begin to look for God's grace evident in their life. So is that person, you know, it, there's all these stories about how this person made you laugh, or this person, you know, maybe, maybe was a great friend, or all these kinds of things are reminiscing. These people were struggling. They were like, what do we do with the fact that our people have died? Does, does this mean that God doesn't love them? Does this mean that God has abandoned them? So if you know someone, maybe we have to bury one of people in this room. Has that person made you laugh? Thank God for it. But has that person tested your patience? Then thank God that he has not abandoned you, but has given that person to you to show you how quickly you forget how patient God is with you. And let that overflow. Let that abound. Let that knowledge of God's patience begin to give you patience. And thank God for that person and the way they tested your patience to remind you of how you and your sin test God's patience. Maybe you have a person like, this is what typically happens, like a person taught you something or had some impact. Well, thank God for it. God put them there for a reason. But maybe it's somebody taught you of what not to do. <laughs> thank God for it as well. Do you have something fond to remember of that person? Great, thank God for that. Does that person owe you an apology? Thank God for that as well. It might be that God has used that person to show you how perfect and holy God is and how patient and kind he is with you. That he accepts in Christ our apology. Maybe there's something you need to forgive that person for, and now it's too late. 
And thank God that he's reminded you of how he's forgiven you in Christ. That while that person may be dead and seem like out of reach of your forgiveness, what a powerful reminder that while we were yet dead in sin, God expressed his love for us and sent his son to take our place. So resist the temptation to simply outweigh the good with the bad. That's a false hope. It's impossible. And if you try, you'll either lie or you'll fill the people around you with a false hope. Instead, we celebrate in death that there's a final word that God speaks over death in Christ. We see it as Paul did through the work of Jesus Christ being resurrected. So here's what we do. Instead of looking to the false hope of how perfect this person is, I encourage you to this. Let us embrace the failures of a person and cling to the perfection of Christ. You don't have to say, remember I told you this, like, this wedding's about me. No, it's about Jesus. And yet in death, we're like, make it about me. Say nice things about me. No, it's about Jesus. We don't have to gather around the deceased and say, good things about them. We have to gather around them and say good things about Christ. And the more we actually embrace our own imperfection, the more we see how good Jesus is. This means that what I, I regularly hear people say is not if they, if they don't just want to simply talk about the goodness, it means they secondarily, if that doesn't work, they jump to the next step of false hope, which is to minimize the weight of death in hopes of just getting over it. Can't wait to just get past mourning. Well, don't miss what he says here. He says, don't mourn as those who have no hope. Notice what he says, just like he said in, at the beginning. He didn't say flee from all sexuality. He said flee from pornified, from pornea sexual immorality. Flee from this type. And so he's not saying don't mourn. He's saying mourn. In fact, like the, the shortest Bible verse in the Bible, I'll give you some Bible, Bible memory, John eleven thirty five. 35, the only recorded time apparently Jesus did this, says that Jesus wept. And what was he weeping over? The death of his friend Lazarus. Don't miss that. He, he wept over his friend Lazarus knowing he was about to call him out of the dead. So, so again, we don't, we don't just like, don't skip to, like don't, 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 don't come to a person who's mourning the loss of someone and be like, let's get over it. Jesus is going to raise us. No, Jesus modeled that for, look, I'm going to raise this guy and yet I still love him enough to, to weep for him and his family. So he's, he's not saying don't mourn. He's saying don't mourn in this way. Mourn, but mourn in such a way that testifies to a deeper belief. Rather than minimizing death or its weight in hopes of getting over it, we actually see it for what it is. This is the way people typically talk about this. Oh, well, they're in a better place. Well, that may be true, but that's typically used as a means to minimize the finality and the pain of death. Sometimes it's simply meant to assuage grief by distracting us from the present pain, the reality that it faces us. We, don't, we must be careful not to look for hope by simply looking right past death. We see the finality of death, but yet we see the finality of God's grace. We don't look past death. We look to Christ's victory over it. Christian, don't forget your baptism. Jesus didn't outsmart death. Jesus didn't outwit death. Jesus didn't outrun death. 
Jesus didn't like trick and juke death and get out of its way. Jesus bore the full marks of death in his body and then walked out of the grave three days later victorious over it, such that now we find in the New Testament, we can look at death, not by outwitting it or outsmarting it, but by seeing Christ bearing the full marks of it, say, death, where's your victory? Where's your sting? Oh, thanks be to God that he gives us the victory in Jesus Christ. No one drowned you in your baptism. That's because in your baptism, you were in your body painting a picture of what Jesus did in his life, death, and then resurrection. Don't forget this. We don't outsmart or outwit death. We don't try to minimize it. We recognize it for what it is. It is final. It is complete. And yet there apparently is a word that is more final and more complete that Jesus speaks even over death. Don't minimize death. This, this is what this means. Like you have kind of A, B, C. A, here's this person who is, uh, who is, who is passed on. B, here's God's grace in their life that shows that they were held by God and see now we believe they're in his presence in a better place and what I typically run into is we skip right from A to C and we get together and hide the B the evidence of God's grace in that person's life and we just skip right to well he's in a better place and if you're not a believer you'll say something you know if you're not a Christian you would say well he's he's resting right by what right do you have the ability to declare that this person is at rest. How do you know? We don't skip over what's really true. We don't skip over the marks of grace that say that we are identified now with Christ. We believe that, verse 14, Jesus died and rose again. And even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Did you get it? He's going to bring those with him. This is important because, as we saw uh, even earlier in this text, this is ultimately a church-centric book. Uh, this is written to a local church. And apart from belonging to a local church, there will always be parts of this Bible that mean nothing to you. And this is one of them. And so this is what we would say in our membership class, that membership in a local church is an endorsement of God's grace, God's saving grace over your life. So this is what this means, like, Joining, walking through the disciple-making process of belonging to a church is a, an endorsement of other people. You can stand all you want and say, I believe this, I believe that. But when other people go, no, I've watched this person, they actually believe it. It means something. You can self-proclaim all you want. I'm this, I'm that. Mm. When other people endorse you, it's different. That's what church membership is for us. Look, we're not trying to look across the world and say, here are the reasons why we know this person's going to hell. That's not what we're doing. Instead, in that endorsement, we're saying, look at the evidence of God's grace. Here's the reason how I know this person's in Christ. And when Christ comes and brings with him his people, this is the reason I know this is that person. I see the evidence, the marks of God's grace on this person's life. Don't skip from A to C. They died, they're in a better place. Instead, we see the central fact here is, look, we know that because this person is in Christ, they're in good, good hands instead of just looking to get over it instead of just looking to get past it this is what we do let us embrace the gravity and finality of death such that we see the gravity and finality of christ's victory over it don't minimize death now be careful uh 
Don't be offensive. But avoid the way you even use euphemisms to distract yourself from the reality of death. We say things like, that person passed away. I fear what we're really doing is minimizing death. You don't believe me? Friend, Jesus didn't pass away. Jesus was publicly executed, humiliated, left out to asphyxiate, abandoned, and naked. He died. He is dead as dead can be. And yet, when we see the finality of that death, we realize the gravity of the resurrection. Don't miss that. If Jesus just like, well, he's, you know, rest in peace. He's passed on. Well, then when he walks out of the grave three days later, it's not that big a deal. Friend, resist the temptation to see death as something you need to minimize or, or distract yourself from. We see death. And wow. I mean, do you, do you get this? Do you, you begin to feel this? When you start to believe this, do you realize how weird you'll look in the world? Like, do you realize how you will stand apart? And you'll talk about these kinds of things in ways that make people be like, what? You get it? What you believe about death really fuels how you live, what you believe about your own life. He says, the Lord will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. These people were worried. They were worried about their friends who had died. They were living in eager anticipation for Christ's return. And some of the people who had died probably died because they were martyred, probably died because of persecution. And they were worried. Did God not love them? This awful thing has happened. Is God not protecting them? And Paul says, friend, don't miss it. In the same way that Jesus died and was raised, now we also, even if we have died, will be raised with Christ. This is a bizarre belief. This is a bizarre and radical belief. And I ask you to think, what would it really mean to believe that Jesus is not dead? I try on a regular basis to let this be the thought that motivates me. I put Bibles in boxes. I don't know what you're nerdily protective of, but mine are my Bibles. Smell like fresh leather. Mm. And in the box, um, this has been a, uh, these words are what I got to say uh, this April. And I keep this. This is the, this is the I don't know, I almost called it a brochure, but this is from my, my grandmother's funeral in April. And the opening text that I asked because they asked me to preach at this funeral is 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 13 through 18. And I got to, I believe, point people to Jesus by saying what was really honorable. And I love this woman taught me about the Bible, taught me to love Jesus, and lived sacrificially uh, for, for seeing Jesus' name being made known in the nations. And so I, I love it, and this is a, a text that will forever be burned into my soul. And I got to share with that group of people something that I want to close and share with you. Ultimately, we understand death because we see death through the lens of what Jesus Christ has done. And our comfort now is that we don't try to minimize death or, or look to like the perfection of a person, but we see death for what it is and we see the perfection of Christ for what he is. You see, 
in the Strait of Gibraltar between the northernmost tip of Africa and the southernmost tip of the continent of Europe. There were two spires that have greatly eroded, but the people believed that they were actually built by Zeus to keep people from going out into the Atlantic Ocean. And some mariners, some explorers, went to the top of those spires and inscribed ne plus ultra, which means nothing more beyond. And they believed that the spires were placed there as a gate to keep people from going into the nothingness, going out into the Atlantic. Well, you wouldn't know what happens next. Thank God that, you know, on behalf of you and me, Christopher Columbus and others, Magellan, Ferdinand, Magellan, right, like Vasco da Gama, Cabeza de Vaca, they all walked right past this. And some of these, thank God, on your behalf and mine, mariners went out beyond the limits of anyone's imagination and returned with the knowledge of something that changed the entire world. In fact, they started calling what they found the new world. Friend, when we look at death, we do not celebrate as those who have no hope, as those who look at death and believe, nay plus ultra, there is nothing more beyond. Be encouraged. Take hope. Thanks be to God that on behalf of you and me, there was one who went beyond the limits of our imagination, beyond the limits of our understanding, into the great unknown, bearing the weight of death, and walking back victoriously over it. Such that you know what happened after this, right? The mariners crawled up to the top of the spires, and they scuffed off the first word, nay, so that all that is on those, all that remained was the inscription, more beyond. Thank God that in death we do not celebrate as though we have no hope that there is nothing more beyond, but instead one has gone into the beyond and come back victorious over death, darkness, and hell, such that now we celebrate even in death there is more beyond. There is more. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Let's pray. God, you are good to us. You are merciful to us beyond measure. We speak of a dark thing. We speak of a heavy thing. I pray that you would even now begin to let these words inform us. God, we are thankful, so very thankful, that you have spoken the last word over death. And we get to declare today that cancer doesn't get the last word. Car accidents don't get the last word. Degenerative diseases don't get the last word. Alzheimer's does not get the last word. But we have hope because we know that Jesus, you get the last word. Death does not get the last word, but God, you do in Christ, and that, that there is life in Christ beyond death. If there's some in this room, maybe this is the first time they've thought seriously about their own death, would you begin to comfort them and encourage them? For the rest of us just like this, would, would we see death not apart from Christ having gone into the unknown and come back victorious? Would we see that clearly? Would we not think of our own death apart from that? God, we confess we regularly have the temptation to simply look to our own goodness and find hope there. 
or we uh, look to minimize the effects of a broken, fallen world and find hope there, would you begin to show us that in Christ we find perfection in him and in Christ there is victory over all that is broken. May this season as we anticipate the coming of Christmas, may we be filled with a longing, a deep desire for you to return and make all things new. There is no shortage of brokenness. There is no shortage of the consequences of sin in our own lives and in the world. Jesus, come back. Give us hope where we are hopeless. Give us peace where we are restless. As you speak the last word of victory over death, may we be encouraged by this good news, transformed and awakened to faith and invited to celebrate this victory forever and ever in your presence. Amen.